0: You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you're about to hear were told March 13th at Northern Light United Church. The theme was Wet and Wild with music by the Whittling Fizzards.
1: Our first speaker tonight is Allie Smith. Allie was born and raised in Juneau. Over the course of her childhood, Allie's parents exposed her to many exciting outdoor opportunities, all in the name of forced family fun. Now, Allie loves being outside, and she's excited to share her first Mudroom story with you. Come on up, Allie.
2: Freshman year in college, I enrolled in an advanced coastal kayaking course that took place over spring break. So 13 of us hopped in a van with a trailer full of kayaks and drove from northern Wisconsin to North Carolina. Our destination was part of the outer banks of North Carolina called Cape Lookout National Seashore. And how Cape Lookout is and sort of the outer banks in general is there are a series of sandy and sometimes marshy barrier islands, that create a pretty good-sized protected channel that's great for kayaking, and there are lots of other uses too, Um, but it's pretty shallow and a pretty safe, warm place to paddle. So we set off, and the first day we were out paddling, things were great. It was sunny, we stopped for lunch at a lighthouse, and that evening we found a pretty great place to camp. There was a nice sandy spot, the beach was pretty elevated, and the night went great. The next day, before we got on the water, we listened to the marine radio, and we knew that there were thunderstorms and high winds predicted for later in the day, so we would have to get off the water relatively early. Looking at the map, we could see that about 16 miles away, there was a really nice, long stretch of beach, which looked like it would be perfect for camping. So we set out and the first part of the day went pretty smoothly and it was kind of exciting because we were paddling alongside stingrays and their fins would occasionally slap the sides of our kayaks. And we paddled pretty far and pretty hard and after about 16 miles, we saw the big stretch of beach that we'd all been waiting for, dotted with little red and white signs. Well, we pulled in to investigate, and the signs said, Bird Sanctuary, no camping. After some frustrated deliberation, we decided that we would get back in the boats and paddle for a couple more hours and see if we couldn't get away from the bird sanctuary. After about an hour, it became clear that we were making little headway anymore because there was a strong headwind, the sky was getting darker, and then someone saw lightning. So, we made a decision. Screw the birds. (laughs) We set up our tents in the bird sanctuary. The island where we set up our tents was pretty low-profile, sandy beach, with a few small dunes and a little bit of vegetation. My tent mate, Becky, and I set up our tent next to a dune, and we had a tarp to use as a ground cloth. And our tarp was a little bit larger than our tent, so we set it up with the tarp around the outside of our tent, sort of like a teacup sitting on a saucer. And our instructor was walking around giving us helpful advice like, you want to remember to... I didn't understand or pay attention to that either. About four hours later, we were all huddled around eating dinner by headlamp um, in the dark, and the winds had really started to pick up. A big shape flew over the top of our heads, and someone yelled, Ah, that's a tent! People rushed to action, and ran into the shallow water, reached up high to grab the tent and wrestle it down, and we threw as much heavy gear as we could inside the tent so it wouldn't blow away again. And then we noticed something else. The water was getting closer and closer to some of our tents. So I asked our instructor, when's high tide? I don't know. It should be soon. Can I see your tide book? And bring a tide book. What? Who doesn't bring a tide book on a coastal kayaking course? Well, tides here aren't very big. What do you know about tides? You're from Wisconsin. <laughs> well, to be fair, the tides in North Carolina, I found out, are a lot smaller than they are in Juneau. Like, here in, spring tide could range in 20 feet. In North Carolina, it's probably more like three or four. But the lack of a tide book really didn't help instill my confidence in our instructor at that point. We moved some of our tents closer together twice that night before we were pretty certain that the tide was indeed going out again. The rain started to really come down, and so it was clear it was time to get into the tents and get nice and cozy. And for a while, that's what it was. And then the rain started to really hit that dune that we were camped next to, roll down the dune and make a nice puddle on our saucer tarp. And the weight of our bodies pushed down on the tarp so that the water seeped under our tent and right up into my sleeping bag. And it started with like just the feet or an elbow. So I just kind of like put myself in the fetal position. But as the night went on and my sleeping bag soaked up more and more water, I just tried to make myself smaller and smaller. So I was touching less and less of my sleeping bag. It was not comfortable. At one point I noticed that the rain had stopped. So I got out of the tent and I stood in the wind with my arms like a sail and dried off and it felt so good. I could see cloud to cloud pink lightning and I could see clouds passing swiftly over a big moon and I just reveled in that moment of semi-dryness and beauty. Then the rain came again, so I crawled back into my damp sleeping bag and I kind of repeated that process over the night without a lot of sleep in between. In the morning, I rolled over and looked at Becky, and she looked like she had just taken a shower. And we heard the boys next door say, well, we slept in a puddle last night. It turns out that those bird sanctuary signs made really great drying posts for our clothes, our sleeping bags, our tents. You name it, we hung it on those signs. The rest of the trip went relatively smoothly without much incident, but I will never forget that night. I will never forget how miserable I felt in that wet sleeping bag and how good that wind felt drying my body. I will also always remember to fold up my tarp so that it's smaller than the footprint of my tent, which may have been what my instructor was trying to tell me. Thank you.
3: Next up is Phil Mosier. Phil is a lifelong Junoite who's working hard to get his merit badges in Alaska hood. So far he's succeeded in that his girlfriend says he has the Alaska look and strangers mistake him for university professors, friends from other southeast towns, or embarrassingly, himself. His favorite pastime is telling hiking partners that the easy part is just ahead when it's not. (laughs) When he was offered a dream job last summer, he was sure that he was becoming his best self, just like those motivational lists on the internet always promised. But as an Alaskan Robert Burns would have said, the best laid plans of musky men. Please welcome Phil.
4: So, after the elections back in, was it 2016 now, I was fired up. I was ready to take action and make a difference in my community. And what better way to do that with one of my favorite conservation organizations in town, one whose bumper stickers, or at least the bumper stickers against, I had seen for many years growing up, the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council. So I applied over there and I went and I volunteered aggressively. I didn't know that was quite a thing that you could do until they gave me an optional job for the summer. That would require me being on a boat miles and miles away from town with no way to get back until the end of the week. So, they sent me to Tracy Arm, Ford's Terror Wilderness, this beautiful, amazing place about 45 miles north, or south of here, south of here. They sent me to this beautiful place with the Forest Service uh, working in conjunction with the last two rangers left to cover miles and miles of fjordland. So I went over there and it's hard to sum it all up in a single story but I can share with you some of the lessons I learned while I was there. So the first lesson that I learned is that sometimes even your best plans can go awry and when that happens it's best just to acquiesce and go along with what the experienced people say. About four hours into a boat ride that should have taken two hours, having a 26-foot aluminum skiff smack down on wave after wave or making probably less than half a mile an hour of progress at a time, I realized that forest ranger Chrissy might have been correct when she said we should probably turn around when she saw the white caps on the horizon. But sometimes you don't learn until the end, until you get back. Um, The second lesson I learned was that that food budget that they have for the Forest Service, it might seem high at first, but it is there for a reason. When you've spent seven days out in a fjord and you're camped on the side of a cliff with your sleeping bag sliding back towards the edge and you've been a wet for every single one of those days. The idea and the possibility of eating an entire wheel of brie cheese like a donut. <laughs> it's just so fantastic. <laughs> there really is nothing better. Until lesson number three, waste management. <laughs> now, Tracy Arm, is kind of special in that you can't dig any cat holes there because there's no soil to dig into. So when it comes to disposing of your waste, tide comes in, tide goes out. You can't explain that, it turns out. So I learned a couple of different techniques, one of my favorite of which involved something that sounds quite a bit like shot put, but isn't quite shot put. (laughs) Yeah, you get really, really good at disposing of that. But even when you're having the hardest time trying to situate yourself just right so that you're in the tide zone where everything's going to get flushed out and you're trying to balance on two separate rocks with a little stretch of water just in between, even then sometimes you learn that nature doesn't wait for you all the time and it might just be that your transcendent moment of having a whale surface 20 feet from shore (laughs) happens when you have your pants down around your ankles now i really was hoping that i wouldn't deal too much with poop but every single one of my friends that I talked to when I told them that the theme for my talk was wet and wild, immediately assumed it was going to be dirty. (laughs) So, I mean, I, I guess I'll just finish that section off, that lesson, with, um, has anyone seen The Demolition Man with Sylvester Stallone? I bet a couple people have. Well, we learned, I learned very quickly on that toilet paper isn't really isn't really a necessity out there and that the three seashell method uh, Doesn't really work But I would say the most important lesson I learned I learned when I was a couple of hours in to one of our trips kayaking along with one of the Rangers and out of nowhere the theme song of Impossible Kimmy Schmidt went into my head, and it wouldn't come out. And I don't know if everyone here has heard it, but it is one of the worst pop songs you could ever imagine. I mean, it fit with the surroundings. It goes, incredible, 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 over and over. And that's what I listened to in my head for hours and hours this one trip. And as I'm going through these amazing, beautiful landscapes, it acted like a barrier walling me off from this transcendental experience I expected to have in the wilderness, from my Thoreau moment, from my John Muir moment. So when I got back, and I, in no uncertain terms made it clear that I was not going to be in, in the room when my girlfriend was watching that, um... I realized that I needed to change not the environment that I was going to but myself if I was going to have a proper relationship with my surroundings. Because wilderness is what you make of it. It's an empty space. It's supposed to be clear of any people from any cultural ideas. And coming back after those weeks Meeting the people that were out there, the artists, the guides, the tourists, I realized that to really experience wilderness, you have to look outside your own front door. You have to find the places that are close to you, and you have to practice in your day-to-day life what you want to be. Thank you.
1: Our next speaker is Jocelyn Rennenbaum. Jocelyn recently moved to Juneau after completing her PhD in fisheries. so maybe it's Dr. Runnenbaum, um, in fishery science at the University of Maine and discovering how to live life after graduate school. She has started to rediscover reading for fun and relaxation but is continually searching for new hobbies. She's a former fisherman, dog musher, and Peace Corps volunteer. Jocelyn, join us on the stage.
5: I was 25 years old. I had a college degree, a couple years of life experience, and I was going to change the world. And the Peace Corps thought I could do it. So they dropped me in this village in Zambia. It's in sub-Saharan Africa. You might have to look it up. I did. So life in the village is very challenging, um, as you might imagine. It's a very difficult place. And about two months into my service, it was a really rainy day, and I had the worst case of the runny tummies you could imagine. I spent the entire day in and out of my chimbusu, my outhouse, And this was a really nice outhouse. I had a really nice one for the village. It had mud walls about three feet tall, and this really nice grass thatched roof that came all the way down. Then there was a six-inch hole in the ground. Ladies, it turns out we can aim. (laughs) So I was in and out of there a lot that day, and around three o'clock after my late lunch, I decided I'd had enough and I wanted to take a nap. But before I tucked myself into my mosquito net, I decided I should go to the bathroom one more time. So I'd been wearing short shorts that day, very inappropriate, so I had a chitange, a sarong wrapped around my waist. I walked into that chimbusu, and I took the sarong off, and I laid it over the wall. And I was squatting in a very vulnerable position. And I felt dripping on me. And I thought, great. It's going to take forever to get the outhouse fixed if it's leaking, it's the height of the rainy season, the mud walls are going to melt, and this is just one more thing that's going to go wrong. Then I realized it wasn't raining anymore. And then I realized I wasn't alone. So there was a bit of a rustling, and I looked up and I was face to face with a spitting cobra. It was flared out, its fangs were showing, and it was mad. So we squared off for a little while. It seemed like eternity, but maybe it wasn't that long. And I was squatting there, and it started spitting at me again. So cobras, they have incredible aim. They shoot for the eyes, and it's a neurotoxin, so my eyes instantly see shut. I somehow made it out of that bathroom, getting my shetange to wrap myself back up, and yelling at the top of my lungs, Insoke! Insoke! Snake! Snake! Nobody came running not a soul. You see, the neighbor, she had just brewed beer that day, and all the men in her yard were drunk. They also couldn't hear over me, or hear over themselves. So the kids, they called their uncle from two houses down. He came running, and by this time, I was on the phone with Peace Corps Medical, and all I wanted to know was, am I going to go blind? No, they said, there's no recorded instance of people going blind. Great, I thought, what do I do? So, they said, you have a first aid kit, there's an eye wash bottle in there, it was two ounces. Not gonna do me any good. So people in my village had started to gather in my yard at that time, and they started telling me, oh, use milk, use milk to wash out your eyes. Peace Corps Medical said, no, don't use milk, you don't know the HIV status of that woman. It was mostly drunk men in my yard, so I didn't have to worry about that. They said, no, you you have that fancy milk from town. So I took the powdered milk and reconstitute it, mind you, I can't see, and I started rinsing out my eyes, but every time I rinsed them out, it felt like sand rolling over my eyes. So after this went on for a little while, I decided that I'd had enough and really wanted that nap. So I sent everybody away from the yard and I laid back, laid down in my bed, and then there was a soft knock at the door. Bob Pascal had come. Knock, knock, Jocelyn. What is it, Bob Pascal? I opened the door and he said, oh, I have African medicine for you. He was standing there with a leaf that was wrapped up, and I said, what is it? And he said, oh, it's tree bark. It's what we give the dogs when they get cobra venom in their eyes. Great, I thought, I've seen Pocahontas. That's what aspirin is, willow tree bark. We can do this. So I squat down and I hold my eyes open for him to drip water over the tree bark and into my eyes. But again, every time that I blink it's like sand rolling over my eyes. So finally I tell him to stop. I can't take it anymore. And I asked him if he can see anything, like, is there anything you can see in my eyes?" And he said, "Yeah, there's these little white pus balls. So he took his shirt that he hadn't washed for probably a week or more, and started dabbing at my eyes to get the little white pus balls out. And I kept blinking and he kept dabbing, and eventually there wasn't any more sand in my eyes and I could open them on their own. So I decided I should let Peace Corps Medical know that I was okay. So I walked down to the generator where I'd sent my phone to be charged uh, because it had died in the middle of this. And... I turned on my phone, and there were a lot of text messages, but they weren't from Peace Corps Medical, they were from my stepmom. My dad had had a heart attack in Israel. She was in the U.S. desperately trying to get to him, and he was alone in this hospital bed. So as you might imagine, I was wondering what in the world I was doing in this place where there are spitting cobras and very far from my family. And right at the right moment, my grandmother called, and I recounted the day to her, I told her about the cobra, I told her about my dad, and she said, "Well, I think it's time for you to make a decision. Are you going to stay, or are you going to come home and figure something else out to do?" So I decided to stay for three years. I extended beyond <laughs> I had extended beyond my two-year contract. Um, You probably want to know my father is healthy and fine and doing very well to this day. And I learned throughout all of this that I am a hell of a lot more resilient than I ever could have imagined. Thank you.
3: Next up, Jeffrey Wyatt was born and raised in Juneau. He is now a third grade teacher, having taught for over 20 years. Jeffrey lives in the valley with his wife, two boys, a pug, and chickens. His current midlife crises crises, involves working on trying to improve himself in chess so his nine-year-old son will stop crushing him so badly in their daily games. Please welcome Jeffrey.
6: My wife wanted a boat, and I'm a really good husband. (laughs) So I got her a boat, and we started going out on the water, really enjoying the southeast Alaska views. But what she really wanted from this boat was to fill up the freezer, with halibut especially. And so we started to dabble a little bit in it, got some advice from, from some friends. And we start going to garage sales, getting some gear. And we go out we start trying to figure out how to get to halibut. Pretty soon we're pulling in some, and they're nice size. They're, they're just the right size to eat. And then this one time we're out, and I'm sitting on the front of the boat fishing. It's kind of a sunny day, and I feel a really strong tug on the pole. And I start reeling it in, and the excitement is building in the boat. And I end up having to pass the pole over the canopy so that my wife can reel it a little bit, and then I can get under there. And, and then I reel it, and we we get it right up to the side of the boat. And oh man, that is a beautiful fish! That is a beautiful fish. But if you've ever been fishing, you know that sometimes when those fish come up to the side, there's a little bit of chaos that happens in the boat. And there was chaos, and I'm trying to find the gaff, and my wife's trying to find the net, and snap. We watched that beautiful fish sleek down into the green, laughing at us all the way. And our hearts were heavy, and for weeks our hearts were heavy about this fish. Oh, it was a beautiful fish. It would have filled our freezer for sure. So we're out a few weeks later and we've been fishing for quite a few hours, but nothing was biting and we're coming up on a rising tide and we know that the halibut come at tides up to the ledges and they're more likely to to strike and We just don't feel right about the place that we're at. So we move over to another location right at the uh, end of an island We can see that there's a ledge down there, and we drop anchor right at that ledge, and we put out three poles because one of my sons doesn't like fishing too much, but three of us do pretty well. And as we put down one of the poles, I look at one of them, and really the only reason we put that pole out was for my son, and really I'm pretty sure it's a salmon pole, but you know. We're going to put it down anyway. So we drop, to the, we drop the bait to the bottom. And right as the bait gets down there, one of the poles starts shaking. And then it goes still. And this is not a good sign. Something is stealing my bait. I reel it up real quick. Sure enough, oh, no, something stole that bait. So I get the bait back on, and I drop it down. And look over. I think I better check this this pole. And so uh, my son comes. We, we reel it up, and sure enough, the bait's gone on that. We work together to get the bait on, and we drop it back down. And again, it hits the bottom, and there's this really strong pull. And sure enough, we have something really big on there, but it's on the salmon pole, of course. Well, I start trying to figure out, okay, how we're going to do this, and, uh, okay, finally get into the rhythm of it, pull up, reel down, pull up, reel down. And I'm pretty strong, but, you know, my wife wanted it on the action, so I let her reel for a little bit, too. (laughs) And uh, and then I I took it back and up and down and up and down, and it comes up, and it's a huge halibut. Oh, we're thinking about that other halibut. Oh, we can't lose this one. Okay, grab the gaff, grab the net. Oh, we should have brought a harpoon or something. Oh no, okay. I take the gaff, I go to put it in and the thing goes in, it's like a millimeter. like, that's not gonna work. My wife takes the net, she scoops for the tail. Only the tail fit in the net. Oh no, what are we gonna do? More chaos, snap. I watch that beautiful fish (laughs) swim away, right under the shore. Oh, Dana, I'm so sorry I lost another fish. So I decide, I got to check the bait on that other one. So I start reeling. And we realize right away that there's something on this one. And as I'm reeling, I'm realizing it is big, too. And later we found out that when the halibut hit this pole, it went over and wrapped itself around the other line, basically re-hooking itself. Up, down, up, down. It gets up to the side of the boat and I say, Dana, I'm not losing this fish for you. And by that time I had a glove on and I jammed my finger into the halibut's mouth. And I reached around and grabbed the gills. One, two, three, pull! She gets the net, she gets it under the tail. One, two, three, pull! Whomp! A beautiful 90-pound halibut lands on the deck of my boat. And there's a moment of silence. And then the high fives, woo, we got a halibut, 60 pounds of meat to fill our freezer. And we decided that's good enough for the day. And as we headed back to the docks, I thought about what a wonderful husband I am to get my (laughs) wife a boat.
7: On the front porch swinging, looking out on the vacant field. Used to be filled with back and now he knows it never will. Brother found work in Indiana. My sister's a nurse at the old folks' home. Mama's still cooking too much for supper, and me, I've been a long time gone. Been a
0: You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded March 13th at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was wet and wild. To date, Mudrooms has raised over $92,000 for nonprofits in Juno. We are currently accepting applications from nonprofit organizations to benefit in Season 8 from admission profits. Interested or have a great theme idea or want to volunteer? Find us on Facebook or through our website at mudrooms.org. Our next monthly event is scheduled on Tuesday, April 3rd. Themes and profit recipients for Season 8 will be announced at our final event for this season, which is scheduled for May 8th. That's on a Tuesday night at Northern Light United Church. We hope to see you there.
7: Hit the road running lord i've been a long time gone been a long time gone no i ain't had a prayer since i don't know when long time gone and it ain't coming back again
1: our next speaker is our a storyboard member and we're a little heartbroken because he's leaving us at the end of the season. And goodness knows, we're short of teachers in this town and state, but he's going to go to law school because we're not short of lawyers. (laughs) But maybe he can pay off his student loan debts from being a teacher. Um, Patrick Roach is sad to be leaving Mudrooms, but he's glad to have an opportunity to tell one more story. And it's his birthday and he does not want us singing, but we're hoping that we can all give him a rounding happy birthday, Pat. So if you'll join me, happy birthday, Pat. He's 39. So Pat Roach, will you come on up to the stage?
8: So I've always wanted to own uh, own my own boat and live on it. So seven years ago, I bought a 100-year-old 40-foot gaff rig schooner named Jubilo, which sounds pretty romantic, doesn't it? (laughs) It's not. (laughs) No, it really is romantic, and it's for sale if anyone's interested. So let me know afterwards. (laughs) I bought this one in Sitka, and at the time, my dad had retired, and he had just spent eight years in Europe on an old Dutch canal boat and he was excited for me to have my first boat, so he flew up from Twisp, Washington, and uh, we spent a week and motored it up from Sitka, and all along the way he taught me about navigation and everything I need to know about small boats. And By the time I got to Douglas, the summer was over, so she was just a liveaboard until the next summer when my uh, chief mate Tom and I decided to take a Taku Inlet. We'd never been, uh, but we knew there was a public-use cabin, and we didn't know exactly where it was, so the plan was to motor over, anchor up, hop in the Zodiac, investigate, and come back the next day. And when we left, it was a beautiful day, a little bit of fog, took three hours to get over, and as we're entering, or getting close to the glacier, up in the northeast corner, we see some kind of floating structure, so I think I'll take a closer look. And as I come alongside, it looks like a bunkhouse, and as I come closer, it looks like a public-use cabin but the tide is pushing me past it, so I put it in reverse. And then I hear what sounds like violin strings breaking. Bing, 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 and then the engine dies. So I step out of the wheelhouse and I look down where I hear the sound and I see the frayed end of my toe line hanging from a cleat. I had backed over it and sucked it into the propeller. And the tide is really strong, so it's pushing me towards shallow water in the glacier. So I think, okay, drop the anchor. And as I'm running forward, I think to myself, it dawns on me I have a brand new battery for the EPIRB, I've got new life vests, new flares, got a Zodiac with an outboard, but I don't have a winter wetsuit. So I drop the anchor, and I come back, and there's this moment of silence between Tom and I, and, and then he says, You want to have lunch? <laughs> <laughs> so we. <laughs> We've lost propulsion, we have no cell phone reception, and there's no other boats in the inlet, but yeah, I'm kind of hungry, so (laughs) we go make a sandwich down below. And as we're eating, we come up with a plan. So we put Jubilo in neutral, and we go in the Zodiac, go around back and start yanking on the line, but it won't come free. So we get on the deck with binoculars, both looking around, and through the fog, every once in a while, you can see a light way on the other side. So I say, okay, well, I'll get in the Zodiac, go over there. Tom will stay here in case someone comes by who can help. So I fill the Zodiac with gas, hop in, head out. About halfway over, the Zodiac starts acting weird, and then it dies. And I realize I'd grabbed an old can of gas instead of a fresh one, and the year-old gas was clogging my carburetor. So I float for 15 minutes in the fog before I finally figure out that you can run it on full choke, kind of, and get over there. And so as I pull up to the, the building, I hear from the docks overhead, hey, nice schooner! And I look up, and there's a guy with binoculars waving at me, and then he says, do you want some ribs or a Snickers bar? <laughs> I think, well, Tom's on the boat, he's probably freaking out. He can't see through the fog. He doesn't know if, if I've got to the other side. I probably shouldn't have a plate of ribs. <laughs> so I have a Snickers bar. And as many of you probably realize, it's the Annex Creek power station, and the man is its caretaker. And he lives there by himself, doesn't get a lot of visitors, so he wasn't fad about the company. So he brings me in, and we try some folks on the phone, but no one's answering, and so we call the Coast Guard. And there wasn't that commercial rescue service there is now, and so the way it works is they put out an APB, and if any other boater is willing to tow you in for a reasonable fee, you got to take it. So while they're calling around, The caretaker gives me a a full tour of the whole facility. He shows me the turbines underneath. He even gives me a lesson on electricity that uses a water spigot as its analogy. That's all I can remember. Um, But it was fascinating and really cool. And then the Coast Guard calls back. It's Salmon Derby weekend. So who wants to be hauling an old sailboat when you could be railing in a king? And so they have dispatched a team to assist me. I think, oh, this is so embarrassing. So I thank the caretaker, hop in the Zodiac, start motoring my way back, sputtering at full choke. And as I break out on the other side of the fog, I see Jubilo has moved a lot, and it is very close to the shore. So I hop on board, and Tom says, as the tide came up, we started dragging anchor. So we just dump a ton of chain into the water. And just then, we see the Coast Guard zipping in at like 30 knots on these Defender-class response boats. And they pull up, they tie up, and they hop on board, and they uh, tell me they're going to tow me back. And it's okay, thank you. And they ask me what I cruise at, so I say, six knots. I think they're asking out of curiosity. And I see all of their faces drop because they have to tow you at your cruising speed. So they'd come over in 20 minutes, but it was going to take them three hours to get back. <laughs> so now I feel like a total ass. And... Uh, and... <laughs> Uh, so they tell me to haul up the chain. So I go to the engine, turn it on, so I can operate the deck winch, and click, nothing. When I killed the engine with the tow line, I would forgot to break the circuit, and all my batteries are dead. And I just d- dumped 100 feet of chain in the water. <laughs> and so as the Coast Guard's sitting there watching us, Tom and I take turns, cranking it all back in. <laughs> and I am so out of shape I'm sweating <laughs> I don't want to have a heart attack too in front of these guys and so finally, we get it all back on board and they tow us in and it takes three hours and when we get there I, I, you've probably seen this but they bump you 40 foot sailboat they just bump you perfectly into your slip it's amazing like magic and I was, I was so grateful to have the Coast Guard and you know I also learned that You can never plan for everything that could go wrong in life, but there will always be nice people along the way to help you out. Thank you.
3: Number six, Sean Egan. Sean has lived in Juneau with his wife and two kids for almost three years. He loves to explore and the things that happen when you lose all control of a situation. This happened 27 years ago in a rural region of Haiti called the Plateau, probably Central. Sean, please join us.
9: Okay, Haiti, 1990. My friend Tanja and I. I'd been to language school, but we were about to go out into the Plateau Central for two years of being forestry volunteers. And I had found a house about three weeks earlier, but she was having trouble finding a house, and there was a rumor that 20 miles north, there was a house that met Peace Corps standards. So we had a plan, we were gonna get up early in the morning, go find this house, it was October 30th, hopefully get back that night, and the next night we could go to a Halloween party with some other Americans. So we went to the uh, district capital called Hinch. Um, wasn't too much of a place. They didn't have sewer, running water, or electricity, or phones. That um, wasn't much. But they said there was a bus that went north every hour or two, and sure enough, there was. And we jumped on this bus, and we knew that after about an hour and a half, we had to look for a hand water pump, and that's where the house was. So we drove north, and there was a few trees. I don't remember crossing any creeks or rivers. And then it went to tall grass, and then it went to short, stubbly, burnt grass. And I was like, why would they send a forester here? And then we saw the water pump, and the bus stopped, and we jumped off. There were about 10 houses. Each had a dirt yard surrounded by cactus. Cactus are the only things that the goats won't eat. And people are like, what are Americans jumping off in the middle of nowhere? And Tanja says, and I want to rent a house. And they look at her strange. But they run off and find the owner of this house. And the owner comes back and shows us the house. And it has a concrete floor and a corrugated iron roof. And that's the criteria. So she says, yes, I'll take it. Plan is going beautifully. So we're like, and when does the bus go back? There is no bus back today, but tomorrow. But there may be a pickup truck, and he may stop and pick you up. So that works. After a while, a pickup truck shows up. It's got a plank on one uh, wheel well and a plank on the other, and people sit with their knees facing inward. And we jump in with some Haitians, and we're trying to converse with them the best we can, and they say, are you guys married? And I say, no. And she says, yes. And I said, all right, well, we're not married to each other. And they're like, well, if you're Americans, you should have that ring on your finger that says you're married. And Tanja says, wait, I'm Puerto Rican. In my country, we wear our our ring on our toes. She holds up her Birkenstock-clad foot, and there's a ring on her toe. All right, so we're driving along, a little bit of small talk hot, but it's not quite as unbearable, and there's these big dark clouds in the south. And they get bigger, and the wind starts blowing, and the sun is low in the sky because the day's getting thin. And it looks more beautiful to me, and things are going well. And then all of a sudden, the driver slams on the brakes, shh, jumps out, throws up some sort of canopy tarp over the eight of us so we don't get wet. No sooner is the tarp up, the rain just starts. Banging down. It's the hardest rain I've ever seen, much harder than the rain here. So we drive for about an hour, I don't know how long, a ways in this. And all of a sudden, shh, slams on the brakes on a small downhill. And we're like, what's up now? And we look at the other people and they're like, the river. The river is too high to cross. Well, none of us can get out of the vehicle because it's raining so hard. So we just sit there for an hour or so, and then it turns to a drizzle. And I jump out and look around, and sure enough, the river looks pretty high. And I pound in a stake to see where the river is because I wanted to see how it changed, whether it's going up or down. We get back in, and people start wandering away, but we don't really know why. We have no idea where we are or where they're going. And then after about an hour, I go out again, and it's a little bit... Darkness is coming on. There's a beautiful sky full of stars. And I notice that the river's gone down like 10 feet farther down the road. So I go back in and I'm like, you know, I'm, it's past dinner time. I don't like missing meals. And I'm like, how far does the river have to go down before we get to drive? And they point to the cab of the truck and it's empty. The driver's left with the keys He's not coming back till tomorrow. I'm disappointed. I'm mad. (laughs) But everyone seems to leave. Tanja has her plank of wood. I have my plank of wood. We get a little bit of sleep that night. Wake up in the morning. Driver shows back up. Doesn't say a word. Jumps in the cab. Turns on the engine. We go across the river. It's about halfway up the wheel well. And, uh, We go back into Hinch. I don't know, it's mid-morning, kind of hungry. Not much in Hinch. Can't find any bread, but I do drink a warm soda. And then after a while, we hitch a ride back to our friend's house. And I'm psyched for the Halloween party. So that night, I'm drinking a beer. I don't really have a costume, but hey, I've got a story. So I'm talking to this woman, and I'm like, so last night, you know... We missed like two meals in a row. We slept on these planks. And she's like, this is the Plateau Central in Haiti. People miss meals all the time. And you had a plank to sleep on. You weren't sleeping on the ground. So quit whining, Sean. Well, she's not much fun. So I go grab another beer. And I talk to another guy. And I'm explaining the river and how I, about crossing and He's like, you made a really good decision. And I'm like, why? And he's like, five years ago, there was an American Forester with a big V8 Chevy. He tried to go across that river, and the Chevy went down the river, and he died. And I'm like, go. So I walked outside, and I looked up at that brilliant sky full of stars, and I realized that when you're new in an area, there's people who are looking out for you, even when you don't know their names and you'll never see them again.
1: Our last speaker this evening is Jeff Rogers. Jeff has lived in Juneau almost a decade and spent most of his time working for the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation. He and James Hoagland got married last summer, and together they lead Juneau's LGBTQ community. They love the wet and wildlife of Juneau, but they regularly escape south of the border to dry out and soak in the sun. Jeff, come on up.
10: Every year since James and I have been together, we have vacationed in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. For those of you who don't know Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, especially the old town, it's beautiful and it's a gay mecca. Beaches and bars, as far as the eye can see, are filled with gays and lesbians from the United States and from Canada and all over the world uh, looking to unwind and have a good time. James and I can't be in Puerto Vallarta for more than five minutes without somebody telling us that we have to get on the wet and wild cruise. (laughs) As soon as we're walking down the street, we get solicited from across the street, hey, boys, I've got tickets to the wet and wild cruise. Well, the wet and wild cruise is exactly what you can imagine. It is a um, sunstroke-inducing... Um, alcohol-fueled kind of adult binge to a nude beach where people do shots out of each other's body parts, if you can get the image. Now, thankfully, this story is not about the Wet and Wild Cruise because (laughs) James and I have never been on the Wet and Wild Cruise. It's just not our speed. But there are great things to do in Puerto Vallarta, and our favorite amongst them is to go to the Vallarta Botanical Gardens. Some of you have probably been. It's about an hour up into the mountains. And in, by botanical garden standards, it's modest. It's, it's a little wooly and unorganized, um, but it's beautiful. It's, it's just raw Mexican jungle magic. In the very middle of it, there's this hacienda, a two-story structure with a bar and a restaurant on the top and then a great open-air area below. Um, This is our favorite trip, and we have our little pattern. So three years ago, James and I were taking our trip to the Botanical Garden. We have our uh, coffee and empanada in hand that we've gotten from a little bakery, and we're headed to the corner where we're going to pick up the bus. And we love the bus in Mexico. It's just one of the best parts about being there is riding the bus. And it's exactly what many of you know about Mexican buses. Um, they're ramshackle, but they're filled with beautiful, great people, kids and families, and there's always somebody playing a guitar. We hop on the bus, and we start to head up into the mountains. And the ride is as you would expect. Oh, I have to go back and tell you one important detail. Um, as we were getting to the bus, just as about we were to get on, James says, I don't think I feel well. Now. Stomach bugs are super common in Mexico, and we've kind of come to accept, accept them. We don't make many special arrangements, but we know what to do. We hop into a convenience store, we get two bottles of electrolyte water and some crackers to go with our breakfast. Hop on the bus, and we start winding up into the mountains, and it's as you expect. It's, it's rough, um, there are constant speed bumps for some reason, and the road winds through high hairpin turns. You all know where this is going. Um, We have eaten our breakfast and James has consumed his water and, you know, maybe after 15 minutes, I look over and James is looking pretty green and I say, honey, are you okay? He just shakes his head no. I know he's going to throw up. I grab our bag and I try to see if we have a plastic bag or something. We don't, but we do have two fabric sarongs and I think, well, maybe, (laughs) maybe if he puked into the sarong like it was a nest, we would catch some amount of it. So I gave him the sarong with this instruction to catch his own vomit. (laughs) Indeed, it's not very long, and James does throw up a little bit. It's really not so bad. It was a little bit right into the sarong, and it, it just wasn't too bad. It stinks, and the bus is hot. The buses are always hot. So he's holding a little sarong in a hot, stinky bus that he's vomited in, but it's really not so bad. It was only a couple of minutes before James, I, I can only describe it as 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 if a, a cartoon character had unhooked their lower jaw and fire hose-like projectile vomited everywhere. Onto the seat, onto the floor, onto himself, and of course onto me. Now, as vomit goes, it wasn't so bad. It was Mostly the two bottles of water he had just drank and the little bits of crackers he had been eating. I think for a moment James actually probably felt better, and this was good for the group. But the problem now is that we don't have a, a little sarong nest with a little puke in it. There's puke everywhere, including a huge pool of puke on the floor of the bus. I will Try to paint this picture, which is that the bus is going at varying speeds, stopping um, and starting and stopping and starting. Yeah, you guys know what's coming. The pool of vomit on the floor has turned into a river of vomit on the floor with a wave that cascades forward and back. There was a little kid in front of us, a sweet little kid, who'd taken to splashing around in it, and it's his feet. As the vomit rolled back and forth and back and forth, I tried, uh, as a good tourist, to soak up the vomit that was on the floor so as not to disturb me. You know what's funny? Nobody even really seemed to care, (laughs) which makes me think that tourists must puke on the bus in Mexico all the time. Um, We finally got to the garden, and I uh, gathered up our puke-soaked sarongs, and I escorted my puke-soaked husband off the bus, I knew what we had to do. There is a, one of the features of the garden is a, a wonderful river that comes down out of the mountains. And it's about uh, maybe a mile hike, it's not not too far. And I said, we just have to go to the river. So I led James down to the river. Um, he stripped down, I stripped down, we both washed. I washed both of our clothes and both sarongs in the river and hung them up to dry. Uh, we, I think we felt, probably fell asleep there in the sun for a moment. I eventually took James back up to the hacienda um, and laid him down to rest with a bottle of water and continued about my day in the garden. Um, It's it's a spectacular place, I recommend it to any of you who've never been. So I have never been uh, on Puerto Vallarta's famed wet and wild cruise, but I've had at least one, if not several more, incredible wet and wild adventures there uh, and I hope to have many, many more. So thank you very much.
7: Now me, I went to Nashville Trying to beat the big deal Playing down the Broadway Getting there the hard way Living from a tip job, Sleeping in my car How can my guitar be? I'm gonna be a star Now me, and do You're singing every Sunday
0: You're listening to Mudrooms on KTOO News, Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live on March 13, 2018. The theme for the evening was Wet and Wild. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit us online at mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from storyboard members Melissa Griffiths, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Alita Buss, and Sarah Hannon. Music this month was by The Whittling Fizzards. I'm Alita bus. Have a good and night. I ain't coming
7: back again. It's long time gone. No, I ain't hit the roof since I don't know when. Long time gone. And it ain't coming back again.